How many of you were either at the Maverick game last night, heard about the Maverick game, watched the Maverick game, listened to the Maverick game last night? Maverick hockey? All right, quite a few of you. Just for those few of you who are not there, I think that was the craziest ending to a sporting event ever. Here's what happened. It went into overtime, and the Mavericks scored a goal. They went through the entire trophy ceremony, giving out all of the awards before, and I will tell you that most of us left after that, including my family, before somebody apparently had some additional video footage that was given to the officials. Apparently, even the officials had left the building, but they brought them back. And after reviewing the additional video evidence, they decided that it was not a goal. And then they had to decide, what are we going to do about this? They literally restarted the game, I think about an hour after they had given out the trophy or after the, the final winning goal. And for all of us Mankato fans out there, they still won the game. It was about nine seconds into the second overtime period that they restarted, that they scored. And let me tell you, <laughs> I think that is the craziest sporting event ending that I have ever heard. I mean, what would have happened <laughs> if Bemidji had won that game? <laughs> they had already given MSU the trophy. They had already awarded all of the awards. And you know, what that reminded me of is that in life, we are bound to, at some point in time, fail. <laughs> Even the CCHA failed to review the goal enough before making sure they gave the trophy to the correct team. My mind was blown. And the reality is that all of us will fail at some point in time. It's just part of life. And the question is, what will you do when you fail? And what does God do when we fail? It's part of our four series. We're talking about how God is for us, for our home, for our community, for the world. And our key verse, which you saw in the video ahead of time, is 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we then are invited to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So two weeks ago, we started the series. Uh, we talked about the two lost sons. And we talked about how God was for both of them, the younger brother and the older brother. The younger brother ran off. The older brother stayed home. But the, younger, the, the older brother didn't even want to join the party when the uh, younger one came back. And we talked about how somehow God is for both of those sons. And that God is for us. Whether you've been around forever or whether you've run away from God, God is still for you. Last week, Sandy uh, took us through the paralytic, paralytic man who was saved uh, by Jesus. Uh, and his friends brought him. They tore through the roof. And we talked about this idea of inviting Jesus into our homes and then sort of looking for the unexpected, watching to see, is our roof going to get torn off? 
God is for us in that. He's for our homes. And today we get to talk about how God is for the church. And we're going to be in John chapter 21. You can open up your Bible there. I'm going to kind of review a little bit of the story. We're going to start in verse 8. But at the beginning of the chapter, Simon Peter is inviting several of the disciples to go out fishing with him. And what's happened is that Jesus has died. He's rose again. He's actually appeared to them a couple times. Uh, but they're kind of feeling distant. Uh, and so they go out fishing. Simon Peter invites a number of them to go out fishing with him. And they're out all night long, and they have caught nothing. Now, I read that apparently fishing at night was the best time to fish, so the fact that they're fishing at the best time and not getting anything is really troublesome. These are fishermen. They know what they're doing. And Jesus arrives on shore early in the morning, and he yells out to them, How's the fishing going? And they reply, Not so great. We haven't caught a thing. So Jesus Uh, says, well, why don't you try the other side? And for whatever reason, they listen to him. They don't actually recognize who it is, but they listen to him and they throw their nets in on the other side of the boat. And suddenly, the catch is so big that they are unable to haul it in. At this point in time, John realizes that this is Jesus. And when John realizes it is the Lord... Peter realizes it's the Lord, and Peter literally jumps out of the boat and starts swimming to shore. And we pick up the story in verse 8. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish you have caught.'" So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Love the specificity there. Uh, But even with so many, the net was not torn. And ancient nets aren't so great, so this is actually impressive. Jesus said to them, come now and have breakfast. None None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What I love about this story is I think we get a little window into the struggle that the disciples were facing in their hearts and in their minds. The text says that this was the third time that they had seen Jesus since he came back from the dead, and yet somehow they didn't recognize him. They had spent three years with him, and yet they didn't recognize him, I think says something about where they were at. I think it means that they were still doubting whether or not Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And if you imagine what it's like if you're in the mind of the disciples, I mean, they had spent three years watching him do amazing things, miracles, turning water into wine. They had watched him feed thousands of people multiple times. They had watched him teach with authority, and people were awed by him. I mean, Jesus was for the religious leaders, like Nicodemus, but he was also for the Romans, like the centurion. I mean, who was for both of those people at the same time? This guy was amazing. And then he dies. 
and they're wondering, what in the world is going on? Even Peter's suggestion to go fishing, I think, demonstrates a little bit about where they are at. Let's take a walk down uh, memory lane for Peter. So, Peter is the first disciple who is called to follow Jesus. And he immediately leaves his nets to follow Jesus. In John chapter 6, there's, Jesus gives a hard teaching, and then a bunch of disciples, it says, leave him. And Jesus asks the disciples, the 12 apostles, are you going to leave me? At which time Peter says, well, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then as Jesus is nearing the end of his life, and he is telling them about what's going to happen, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no. Even if all people fall away, I will be faithful. I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, if you've read the rest of the Bible story, and even if you haven't, it's okay, I'll tell you, Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. And after Jesus is arrested, Jesus, Peter's asked three different times, aren't you a part of that group? Don't you know him? Aren't you a Galilean like him? And each time he says no. And I think what happens when we as humans fail at things is we tend to run away from that thing. We tend to try to get away from that. We go back to what we know. We go back to what's comfortable. Like the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt and they got out into the desert and they were wandering around and they had a hard time, you know what they said? It was better back in Egypt. Why don't we go back to Egypt? At least we had food there. Never mind the fact that they were experiencing horrible oppression. They wanted to go back to Egypt because that's what they knew. And Peter, too, went back to fishing because that's what he knew. He invited the disciples to go with him. And I think that's our reality, too. When we struggle to believe that God is at work in our lives or when we're struggling with things, we go back to the things that we know. And you know, even though I'm a pastor, sometimes I struggle to believe that God is for me. And I have to wrestle through that. So I think this is where Peter is at in this story when Jesus invites them to eat with him. And when they had finished eating in verse 15, it says that Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these fish that you know? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time. 
do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very, true, very truly, I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So three times Peter had denied Jesus. Now three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And the first two times Peter's answer is fairly brief. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The third time it says that he was hurt. And he says, Peter says, you know all things. And that all has this sense of knowing both the past and the future. So I think about it like this. In the, in the mind of Peter, he can sort of say, Jesus, you know that I betrayed you in the past. You know whether or not I'm going to betray you in the future. Because quite frankly, you've already proved that because you predicted it once and I did it. And so, Jesus, to the best of my knowledge, yes, I do love you, I want to love you, but I don't know if I'm going to screw up again. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows whether or not we're going to screw up. He knows when we're going to screw up, and yet Jesus is still for Peter. Jesus loves Peter. And because he loves Peter, Jesus invites Peter to be a part of his mission, to join him in that. So what does Jesus do when somebody fails and messes up with them? He recommissions them. It's crazy. He sends them back out to do it again. Not the messing up part. <laughs> See, I would argue that Peter actually knew when he called Je Peter, when, sorry, Jesus actually knew the first time when he called Peter that Peter was going to screw up sometime. And of course, interestingly enough, back then, Peter was actually known as Simon. And this is the name that Jesus is actually using in this scenario. He's saying, Simon, son of John. He's recalling back to who Peter was. Because Peter went back to who he was. He was back to fishing. In Peter's mind, he was Simon. And so Jesus acknowledges this. Simon, I know you screwed up. It's okay. And Jesus is the one who gave him the name Peter. And you know what Peter means? If you've read your Bible, it means rock. And Jesus said to Peter, you are going to be the rock that I'm going to build my church on. But see, in this moment, Peter wasn't there. He was back to Simon. He was back to fishing. And Jesus was recommissioning him. So he's giving him a chance again even though he fails, Jesus is giving him that threefold chance 
to say, yes, I love you again. And each time Jesus tells him, then serve my people. Be the rock that I've said you're going to be. Go build my church. See, like Peter, we fail. We mess up. We screw up. And Jesus knows this about us. Jesus knows that we're going to screw up. He knows everything about us. And yet, Jesus still invites us to be a part of his mission. In fact, Jesus went to the cross for us while we were yet sinners. Because Jesus is for us. Jesus is for you. And the question isn't, are you perfect? Or as the uh, famous singer-songwriter Janet Jackson said, what have you done for me lately? No, the question is, do you love Jesus? That's the question that Peter was asked. Do you love me? And if you do, then like Peter, you too are qualified to serve the church, to build up the church. If you love Jesus, you're qualified. That's it. It's simple. And we're not talking about the church as a building. We're not talking about the church as a social club or as a self-help group. It's not a worship service that we attend. It's not even a sermon or a message or a podcast that we listen to. It's not a charity or a nonprofit that we give to or volunteer at. The Bible uses uh, a, a lot of images, and I want to uh, look at two of them uh, today to describe the church. It uses the image of family, and it uses the image of a body. And each of these images offers us a picture of what the church can be. So the church's family has this idea that we are joined together by something greater than our personal preferences or our life circumstances or even our political ideology. His idea, church as a family, has this idea that we carry on the traditions and celebrations that have been passed down from generation to generation all the way back from the disciples. We carry on those traditions today as we do church. And church as a family has this idea that even though we might not always get along, maybe you're for the amen and maybe you're for the amen, whatever. I appreciate that, John. Um, yeah, I mean, whether, you're, whether we get along or not, that shouldn't stop us from having one another's backs. That idea of church as family. And if you love Jesus, you're qualified to be part of the family. The second image that I want to use today is the image of a body. And even though, Scripture says, even though we are different parts and we have different gifts, we're all as one, we function as one body. We have one mission, we have one purpose. Uh, so we get to join together in that. And I love that each image kind of communicates a sense of togetherness and also a sense of oneness. Uh, Kat Armas says that no one person can reflect the image of God. We need all of us. The diversity of the church, the different denominations, I think that's one of the good things about different denominations. 
Uh, they can reflect the image of God in different ways. So in summary, the church really is the presence of Jesus among his people, called out and into a family to accomplish the purposes of God. And that means we're centered on Jesus. It means that we care about one another and we care about our world. That's my simple definition of a church. And of course, that gets lived out on a macro level, the church on a whole, and it gets lived out on the local church level. See, Jesus started the church when he was here on earth, and then he entrusted it to Peter and to us. If you love Jesus, then you are a part of that tradition. And that means, unfortunately, that sometimes the church can be a broken institution because it's filled with people like me and like you and like Peter that fail and mess up. But that's okay because we don't put our trust in the church. We put our trust in Jesus who actually empowers the church and is the head of the church. And Jesus offers us, offered Peter forgiveness. And Jesus recommissions Peter and Jesus recommissions us when we screw up. And even though you and I fail, and even though the church fails at times, uh, because it does, and we've heard stories about that, sometimes we get a bad reputation because of that. God does not give up on the church because God is for the church. God is for you and God is for the church. And therefore, we should be for the church. So the question is, do you love Jesus? And if you do, welcome to the family. Let's do this, right? Serve my sheep. Because we're meant to be spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. And so I want to invite you into a couple things that you can think about on how to do that. First thing is just to be growing in your love for God. Growing in your love for Jesus. If that's not you already, start. Start working on your love for Jesus, getting connected to Jesus. You can do spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, joining a small group. You can pray. Uh, You can worship here at church. Those are all things that help us grow in our love for God, for Jesus. And then, second thing is this. Find a way to be a spiritual contributor. Find a way to feed the sheep, to take care of the lamb. And Jesus is our model in this. Uh, Jesus incarnated himself, which means he came down to earth and lived among us. Um, So one of the ways that we do that is we put ourselves alongside of other people. We live in community with others. And Jesus sacrificed himself uh, so we can sacrifice ourselves as well, just as we talked about in our key verse. And one of the ways that we do that here at Crossview is we do the blessed stuff. We begin with prayer, we listen with care, we eat together, we serve uh, each other and uh, others, and we share our story. You can also lead a small group, you can host a small group, you can invite other people on the spiritual journey as you go on your spiritual journey. And the last thing I think about in terms of how you can be a spiritual contributor is I think, you know, whatever we learn here on a church, at church on a Sunday morning, it might be for us, but it's also for the world. 
for your friends, for the people around you. So go out and share that with other people. N.T. Wright tells the story of a man who came over for a dinner party. After dinner, he was eager to help out. And so they put him to work. They gave him a towel, and he started cleaning things up. Unfortunately, along the way, he broke the family crystal. They were devastated. They tried not to show it, but they said, it's going to be okay. We forgive you. He went out completely apologetic. And N.T. Wright was thinking, like, what does forgiveness look like in this scenario? And so what they decided was it meant inviting the, back, the man back two weeks later. And when dinner was done, they invited him to help clean up again. And he's like, you want me to help clean up again? Yeah. That's what it looks like to bring forgiveness. And that's what it looks like for us to offer forgiveness to the world. We're going to screw up. I'm going to screw up. You're going to screw up. But that doesn't mean that you can't get back out there and serve Jesus again and build the church. So maybe you've tried evangelism before and it didn't work out so hot in your opinion. Get back up and do it again. Maybe you've tried serving in church somewhere and it didn't work out so well. Well, maybe try that place or maybe try another place. Uh, But whatever you do, get back up again and serve. Let me pray. God, thanks for your word uh, today. Thank you that you are for us, for us in our failures and that you are for us in our church. You love the church. You've entrusted the church to us even though we're failures. Help us to love others and care for others. Help us to bring your goodness and your love to more and more places here in our community and in our world. Amen.